Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Rodin's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us once again as we continue to explore constitutional and civil rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome any of our new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena. I am the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Well, welcome to Dahlia Lithwick and to my co-host, Jackie Gardena. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. And like Jackie, we have multiple locations, so we are also at San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, and Empire College of Law up in Santa Rosa. Today we are continuing our conversation with Dahlia Lithwick, the Senior Legal Correspondent at Slate and host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, The Washington Post, the New Republic, and Commentary, among other places. Lithwick won the 2013 National Magazine Award for her columns on the Affordable Care Act, and she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in October 2018. We are continuing our conversation with Dahlia Lithwick about her latest accomplishment, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. So you describe a very difficult line for people who are on the outside looking in our legal system, women, black and brown communities, LGBTQI communities, to create, to create the change you want, you have to access the system and the power within that system. But to access the system and power, you have to acquiesce to its norms to a certain extent, such as forgiveness, as you talk about, or at times forgetting kind of that memory hole that we want to have with the United States history. How would you talk to aspiring attorneys about that line? I mean, look, this is the paradox in and of itself. How many of your students are going to clerk on the Supreme Court? How many of your students are going to clerk on any court? I mean, I think ours is a system that is so entrenched in there are no schools other than Harvard and Yale. There are no justices other than Harvard and Yale. The people who go to Harvard and Yale clerk for the people who went to Harvard and Yale, and then they go on to become justices. And I think that the messaging is absolutely, this is who is visible and this is who is not. And you're asking me this question, which is exactly the correct question, which is every single human being with a JD is actually perfectly suited to have a clerkship. Every one of them is perfectly suited to do the work that the women in this book do. And we have a really ossified, deeply ossified legal system, not just in terms of who advances and who gets opportunities and who knows who, but also in terms of who gets celebrated and who gets modeled as doing the work, which is, I think, one of the reasons that, as Mitch said at the beginning, you know, I'm obsessed with these Ruth Baby Ginsburgs who are all around us because they're all around us. I think so. My answer to you is sort of Stacey Abrams, who tells this amazing story in her chapter of like taking a bus with her family to go get a recognition and that they, they don't want to let her in. 
and what it means to just have to kind of hurl yourself against systems that are like, well, you can't possibly. You are a black girl who came here on public transit. You can't possibly be our vision of who gets awards. And I think that the answer is you double down, right? You just say, actually, I belong here. Actually, I'm coming in. Actually, I'm going to take that split screen that you've just described of being on the outside and flip it on its head and say, now I'm on the inside and I am going to work from that place of knowing, right? Knowing that I was a child farm worker and knowing what that's like. And I have a chapter about Vanita Gupta, as we said, at the leadership conference, and she describes that whole pivot back and forth from being an insider and an outsider, raised by parents who are immigrants, told sitting at a table like Packies go home, you know, her family is from India, that kind of now I'm, I'm suing the government, wait, now I'm in the government, how can it be? I'm working at the Justice Department, I hate the Justice Department. She's right on that line you're describing of having been invisible and then becoming visible and then making change. And I guess that's my answer is the beautiful thing about having a JD is you can just power through some of that, that even though the system is not going to fling open doors for you and say, like, here's the best clerkship, you can still walk into a court anywhere in the country and file your motion. And as long as you've got your sites checked, like you can win. And in that sense, I think this is, you know, it's not an accident that the framers are lawyers, right? I mean, this is the secret bullet. And so I think it's not caring a whole lot about what people tell you about the magic and the majesty of a legal system that is not available to you. But it's kind of being Brian Stevenson and saying like, here I am, I'm just going to lose and I'm going to lose and I'm going to lose until I win, but I'm going to change the world. And I really think those are the stories we have to tell our students because those are in fact the stories that are truly much more so than the famous people. Those are the stories that are truly, I think, like the stories of American democracy. So let me follow up on, on something I heard in one of your other interviews, because I, I too, am having a hard time getting my hand, head around it. I'm sitting here on my other screen looking at a photograph of the current U.S. Supreme Court. By many measures, you would look at that photograph if you had no ideology or belief system tracking it and say, we've had enormous success. You know, we're looking at four women, three people of color. Wasn't this where we were going? And yet we look longingly back of some courts that were nine white men delivering some of the most influential rights and protections that our country has ever known through interpreting the Constitution. I'm just banging my head back and forth on, on the wall here going, did we lose the mission? I mean, did we get stuck in the superficial vision of what change and success is and miss the thoughtful policy missions that we as lawyers should be more attuned to? I, I think the answer is some version of, you know, what improv comedians would it as yes slash and, right? That I think diversity is a huge piece of what, when Barack Obama, when President Obama was seating judges, it was his eye was first and foremost on creating a diverse bench, more so than powerhouse 
progressive attorney warriors, right? He wasn't matching Scalia for Scalia. He was saying, I want to put the first Latina justice up. And I think that that's part of what he had to do, part of what we have to do. And for people who didn't like that President Biden said the same thing about seating the first African-American justice, I think it deserves that first value that you've laid out, which is we need to have courts that look like us. Because again, that's not just because we have to tick boxes. That is because if a court is to be legitimate, we have to have a court where we see ourselves some way or another in that court, right? But then I think there's the and piece of that, which is we also need progressive warriors. We also need, you know, the people who will answer to Justice Alito and Justice Thomas uh, from the other side. And I think that has been the place where probably the progressive legal movement has fallen down a little bit. I think that, you know, neither um, President Clinton nor President Obama really responded in kind to their predecessors who were putting on the bench Reagan Bush, judges, Bush judges, and, and certainly Trump judges who were principally ideologues, right? So I think that what you're asking is the right question, which is how do you serve both of those values? And I think you're quite right. We've tilted maybe into, and, and by the way, this is there's a lot of difference between President Obama's and President Biden's judicial picks, because I think President Biden has been really focusing on putting people who are in movements, you know, who've worked hard on voting rights, who've worked on environmental rights, who've worked on LGBTQ rights, and even abortion rights, it took a while, uh, onto the bench. But I think it's always hard when you have to serve two missions at once. And sort of the answer is, I think if you were Donald Trump in the Federalist Society, you had to serve one mission and one mission only, which is overturn Roe. So that's always going to just be a really crisp and eloquent statement of what your purpose is. I don't think you can pick between the two values you're holding up. I think they're both really important. It makes it feel as though the mission is diluted which is why you're banging your head against the wall. But I also think it's what allows Donald Trump and the Federalist Society to say, like, look, we seeded a woman. Because if you have a $1.6 billion donation from a single donor to find the woman who's going to overturn Roe, you will find her. <laughs> it's not really hard if you have that asymmetry in the organization around seating judges and the money and the authority to do this one singular thing. So I don't necessarily think this is a failure to be trying to promote two slightly colliding values. I think it just goes to the sort of complexity of a project about what it is that, that we want the judiciary to look like and do that is more than just, I want to overturn Roe. take a brief break to hear a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with our guest, Dahlia Lithwick. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. 
Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Sailor Legal Service has been on the California Central Coast since 1991, under the same ownership and with the same capable team. Sailor is a 100% woman-owned business. If you call Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, the same capable team will answer. You can communicate with the same person each time you contact Sailor. For your orders to subpoena records, on-site copying, process serving, and court services. SailorLegal.com S-A-Y-L-E-R legal.com. Welcome back. We are speaking with Dahlia Lithwick about her new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. One of the things that, that we had a chance to chat about before this interview was that you wrote a book about women who were battling some of the Trump policies and other things that were occurring during the Trump era, but that were long in the making. But there were a lot of women on the other side of the equation as well. And so women obviously aren't a monolith any more than the gay community is or the black and brown community is. So talk a little bit about women who are choosing not to be a part of this battle, in fact, choosing to be a part of subjugating women's rights. I think there are, as is becoming characteristic of my performance today, probably two answers to that. Uh, one is something that I had the incredible privilege of interviewing Margaret Atwood a few weeks ago, and I asked her a version of this question, just wrapped in the handmaid's tale, and said, why are there so many commander's wives in this army? You know, why is Eileen Cannon and Sidney Powell? There are a lot of women who are serving interests that would very, very much subordinate women. And her very Margaret Atwood-ish answer was a version of what you said in the question, which is, there's not any one kind of woman, there never is. And that in all power hierarchies, there are people who realize it's in their interest to align themselves with power, whether or not that serves whoever they are writ large, right? That's how you have a Herschel Walker running for office in Georgia. It's not uncommon. It's very common. And those people, you know, in The Handmaid's Tale telling become commander's wives. It's not unheard of. I think there's another really complicated answer that we in the media are really afraid to talk about, which has to do with faith and religion and the centrality of sort of theology in driving huge amounts of the conservative legal movement and the outcomes that they seek. And Amy Coney Barrett, just to frankly answer the question, comes at this from a, a longstanding interconnection between her legal doctrinal views and her faith views. And that's not me just asserting that. We know letters she has signed and positions she has taken as an academic and things she has written. But I think that for reasons almost beyond my capacity to understand, legal journalists don't know how to talk about that. 
And they're very uncomfortable talking about it. And by the way, legal academics are almost worse at talking about that. And so after Dobbs came down, there could have been a robust national conversation about how theological that opinion was, how religiously inflected that opinion was. Maybe you all heard it. I did not hear it. And so I think this is a place where very often religion is the confounding factor that is allowing people to act against interest. And we, because we don't have language for it and we don't have a place to put that conversation, particularly, I think, in the sort of elite legal sphere where we want to keep pretending that religion has no effect whatsoever on doctrine, until we can name it, it's just going to be a thing that we don't discuss. And as a consequence, you have now, by the way, I just want to note, we're taping this the same week that Linda Greenhouse, who is the most like small C conservative, you know, legal thinker I ever met for a very long time, just wrote a piece in The Atlantic, essentially just saying the six judge justice majority and Dobbs were all raised Catholic. The fact that that's both factually true and unthinkable for someone to write, but unthinkable for Linda Greenhouse to write, tells you exactly, I think, the answer to how hard this is to discuss in a way that is both respectful and tolerant of religion, but also mindful of the ways that it is leached into legal discourse. Dahlia, let's thank you right now because you've given the perfect promo into one of our next guests, who is Nomi Stolzenberg, who is going to talk almost exclusively about the intersection of religion, the law, and the Supreme Court that you've just raised. She's amazing on this. I've heard a lot of people markedly a lot of women, much more comfortably moving into the language that Nomi occupies, which is there's just no way you can think about so much of last term without seeing the lens of faith at the heart of it and the almost abject neglect of faith as a piece of this conversation and the ways in which we, you know, we hive it off from confirmation hearings and we don't want to talk about it in assessing doctrine. I think Michelle Goodwin's been incredibly forthcoming about this in in recent years. There are people who are willing to simply state it, but it's worth saying. I mean, I, I will say that when then Professor Barrett was being confirmed for the Seventh Circuit, and you will recall Senator Dianne Feinstein tried to interrogate her about some of her prior writings and thinkings about the interplay between faith and doctrine. Senator Feinstein was not just shellacked from the right, she was shellacked from the legal academy on the left. Yeah, and I, I think what the other interesting thing not only is is what you're talking about something that's coming up with Nomi Stoltenberg in our next interview, but it's actually something that came up with David Knoll, who wrote an article or co-authored an article called Vigilante Federalism about state legislatures kind of using Christian nationalists kind of thinking to infuse these private subordination laws and allowing people to to sue based on moral outrage. And so it is, it is I think, definitely becoming part of the conversation in ways that it never has been before. So before we get too far, and I I have to get back to the fact that you've been one of the early loud voices about restructuring the court, because you talk about the future, and it's another area in which people whisper it. They're afraid to say the words out loud. Talk to us a little about your thinking, because 
hopefully this is future thinking. I mean, I put myself very squarely in the camp of people who thought this was anathema to me. And for years and years, here is where I say, you know, the youngs at Slate, Mark Joseph Stern, my colleague who's younger than me, got on the bandwagon, at least for, um, you know, adding seats to the court long before I did. It goes back to your sort of initial question, Mitch, about magical thinking and about being awake. But to me, it was like the court is the court and you don't add seats and this is unthinkable. And it can't be the case that just because you don't like outcomes, you add seats. And in part, I think my own thinking has been shaped. And, and here I would add, there are a lot of people who've come, Nancy Gertner, uh, Larry Tribe, you know, people who served on President Biden's blue panel commission about court reform. Some of them have come quite far along the road of court reform as I have. And I think the pat answer is when a seat is withheld from Merrick Garland, because ostensibly it's an election year and we want the people to decide. And then in the next election year, we don't want the people to decide. And when the people are already voting, we rush Amy Coney Barrett through, right? I think you're, you're already seeing that Senate norms buckling under a juggernaut of energy to pack the court. And so then you can't say, I'm opposed to court packing. The court has been packed. Now we can have a meaningful conversation about what's to be done. Here's the one really important thing. I am absolutely, I think, at this point for adding seats to the court. But I also think you're so right that there's so much hush around this conversation. And it's posited as, you know, there's only like four wild-eyed lunatics who are for this in the country, and everybody else is like in the moderate, sober center. And that's just wrong. I mean, there are good bills on the Hill right now to do court reform that don't get nearly the attention and the support they should get. And the other thing I think I want to say about this is that if you look at the commission, at the Blue Panel Commission and the the report they eventually came out with, the stuff that we ignored because we were so busy talking about court packing was, I think, stuff that we should be doing today. So transparency reform, ethics reform, talking at least talking about term limiting, talking about cabining jurisdiction. The court doesn't have to have jurisdiction over every single matter. Like these are decisions that have kind of, the court has arrogated over time unto itself that these are our powers, we can do all the things. And then we sit around and we say, we're just stuck. And it's weird that no other constitutional democracy operates under the thumb of an all-power juristocracy, but oh well, there's nothing to be done. And so what I appreciate about your question is it's not just a conversation about adding seats. There are a hundred things that we could do. At minimum, having a set of judicial ethics that the court is bound by so that a justice's wife participating in some manner in January 6th precludes him from voting on January 6th cases. This stuff is not hard, and it's not actually only at the discretion of the justices. So I think the better question under your question or the question that I'm grappling with is why are we just sitting here? Why is it that we're like, I betcha, in 2072, we are going to really have worked ourselves up into a froth over this. And I think the time to have been talking about this was certainly around the Scalia seat. But the idea that we're slowly, 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 like picking off one or two serious people a year is just so reflective, I think, of that. You know, you've both asked questions about this, just how risk averse as a profession we are to being awake 
and to naming things that are really problems. Well, before we let you go, I have to make a pitch. Okay. You started your book, and we started this conversation with Polly Murray. Like you, until you brought her to my attention, I knew almost nothing about her. So I immediately went and did what you did. I watched the biography. And honestly, I thought maybe I wouldn't get out of bed the next day because I thought I'm such a slacker and unwilling to do incredibly hard things for your entire life. But what Jackie and I have been talking about is perhaps we need to produce a class session for law schools on Polly Murray. It could be either slipped into an intro to law class. It could be slipped into a con law class. Would you be willing to work with us on that? I absolutely would. I will tell you that Melissa Murray, no relation, and I co-taught a class at UVA two two terms ago, like one of those little mini J-term classes. And Melissa, who is much, much, much ahead of me on these issues, took an entire class in this Ruth Bader Ginsburg course to teach on Polly Murray, animated by exactly what you're describing. But also, I think, so I'm delighted to anything I can do. I, I really just read her own autobiography in the last couple of weeks. And I want to commend poetry. Polly Murray's poetry is, you probably heard it, it's woven into the documentary. This is a human being unlike most of, you know, when I started saying like, you know, everybody is like, we're all ordinary and we can move mountains. Not ordinary in any fashion is Polly Murray. And I also just really think that the more we can teach our students that it doesn't like begin and end with Justice Scalia and with Justice Warren or with Justice Brennan, like it's so much bigger than that, that this is like a huge complicated patchwork of people all working in their little corners to do change. I think the more they will see a lane for themselves into the exact project you you both are really kind of lifting up and describing, which is a really tolerant pluralistic, open, generous American identity inside the law. Wow. I cannot imagine a better way to end the podcast. So Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us this morning and for sharing your wisdom and your passion and your hope for what we can accomplish. So um, safe travels. Thank you. And thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. I really loved it. You know, Mitch, when we invited Dahlia Lithwick to be a part of the podcast, I was really focused on the book that she wrote and the women that she wrote about and assumed our conversation would be about that. Instead, and much to my delight and excitement, it ranged so much broader than that about really the role of our system and the role that we play in our system in creating change. There's two things that stick with me after talking with Dahlia. One is her turn of phrase of the Ruth Baby Ginsburgs, because as educators, I didn't take that merely as a call to arms to women lawyers. This should be the Ruth Baby Ginsburgs of all of the lawyers we're training. There's a role they have to play. We are on the precipice of change that many of us are afraid of, 
and this is the next generation of lawyers that are going to have to do generational work to turn that around. But she doesn't let us off the hook because you only merely need to look at her career where she went from a, a position of great power and authority on reporting on the U.S. Supreme Court and chose to go outside of the system to become a commentator, a writer, a speaker, thus being on our show today and and advocating for these ideas, many of which are hard to talk about. So that that really opened my eyes and made what I think we're trying to do worthwhile because bringing these voices, but bringing these ideas to make us think harder. Yeah, and I think the other thing, although we really focused on uh, those with JDs or attorneys, there's a real thread in her book, and I think a real thread in our history, that change doesn't occur simply because an attorney brings a case or a law is passed. It's the result of incredible sustained effort across a broad range of individuals within our society that work together to create that change. And I think if you look at any movement that we've seen in our history, it's been made up of not just the attorney who argued a case before the Supreme Court of the United States, um, but individuals who protested in the streets or individuals who are willing to put themselves out there to, to organize and to speak out at the local level. So I think it really speaks to that broader issue that we've discussed in our first um, several episodes about change really being a local state and not just federal level. And my final word on it would be go to our website at www.sidebarmedia.org where we have provided links to two of the Polly Murray biographies, and that is a must-watch, must-read. Join us and tell us what's on your mind on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Go to our website, as Mitch said, and you can also give us a comment there. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are and what you maybe want to hear about in the future. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Sailor Legal Services, Presertus, and Trellis.law. Our program today is produced by David Eakin, who also composed and performed all of our music. Also, thank you to GoGo Zoger, who is our social media director, managing our gateway to our growing podcast listener community. You ought to be a lawyer. How many times have you heard this from your relatives, family, or coworkers? So what's stopping you? San Luis Obispo College of Law offers on-site and hybrid online evening classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. To learn more about their accredited degree programs or to apply for their next term, go to slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. Your community, your law school, your future. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. 
Procertus is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertus.com. For more information about Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org. California accredited law schools, including the Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law, provide affordable, quality legal education in evening online and on-site classes. Our law school graduates qualify to sit for the California bar exam and upon passing are licensed as California attorneys. For more information about attending a California accredited law school near you, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.